Morning, church. Good to see everybody here. Good to hear you sing. If you're a guest, my name's Kelly, and I serve as senior pastor. It's a privilege to serve at Glowing Bible Church. And um, if you're a guest, we know that it can be hard. Uh, that's why we offer a very purposeful welcome. Matt took us through a welcome this morning. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And that's our invitation as a church. Come to Jesus. Uh, friend of sinners. And so we know it can be awkward, even a little overwhelming to visit a church, and, um, but we hope you feel quickly at home as you're with us in worship each week. And if you have questions about who we are as a community of faith, you can stop by the welcome booth, which is out in the welcome center, little table there. There's somebody at that booth who's eager to do their best to try and answer the questions you might have about who we are. And so you can get to know us a little. We are, let's see, we have ballpark and 210 junior and senior high students away on retreat this weekend uh, and a bunch of volunteers away with them. I see some of you parents look very well rested <laughs> as your kids have been away for the weekend. But let's start with prayer for these students. They actually wrap up their activities this morning and then they'll head home about one or two o'clock today. But uh, I wanted to pray for them and God's goodness to them. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing that it is to be able to send our students away for a time of fellowship and learning from your word. We thank you for the volunteers, some 40 adults that are with them, building into their lives. We pray these adults would have a, a good rapport with our students and that they would have wisdom beyond themselves to bless our students, Holy Spirit wisdom, to answer questions, provide support and encouragement to our students. We realize, Father, that our junior and senior high students are not simply the church of the future. They are the church of today. And we ask you to, to powerfully work in their lives by your Holy Spirit. Help them live in ways that bring them joy and you glory. We pray against cliques in particular and pray that every student will feel loved, cherished, welcomed, accepted within the church. Father, the seeds sown this weekend by your word, through teaching, through song, we pray those seeds would find good soil, and that they would grow up and bear a harvest of righteousness in our children's lives. Give them safety in their activities, the balance of the weekend, and in travel home. In the mighty name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. We're in a new sermon series titled, Religion versus Jesus, Matt mentioned it. We just began the series last week, so if this is your first week, you're not uh, too far behind. Uh, these sermons, each of them stand alone, and they're just elements of what it means to know Jesus, to be cared for by Jesus. And we, I want to begin today with a story that I think, it's a true story, that will help us understand our passage for today. If you've ever flown into New York City, then perhaps you've landed in LaGuardia Airport. So named after former Mayor Ferrello LaGuardia, who served as the mayor of New York City during the darkest days of the Great Depression, the 30s, and then throughout World War II into the 40s. LaGuardia is remembered as one of New York City's most colorful mayors. He was known to ride, for example, the New York City fire trucks, he would take time out from his busy schedule, jump on a fire truck, and go put out fires. 
He would raid bars with the policemen of the city. He would take entire orphanages to baseball games. He would read the comics weekly on the radio. There's one particularly interesting story this morning, though, in Ferrello LaGuardia's um, time as mayor that captures his larger-than-life personality as well as illustrates what God has done for us through Christ. On a bitterly cold night in January 1935, right in the middle of the Great Depression, the mayor turned up at night court, which served the poorest ward of the city. If you're unfamiliar with night court, it's in reruns. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> it's actually, they've remade it, right? There's a, there's a new sitcom out. If you're unfamiliar with night court, though, it's that arm of the judicial system that runs all night long with the goal of preventing backlog. Night court tries to expedite petty crimes, moving them along to summary judgment in an effort to bring um, justice in a timely fashion and ease the strain on local jails. LaGuardia shows up at night court, dismisses the judge for the evening, and takes over the bench. Within a few minutes, a tattered old woman was brought before him, charged with stealing a loaf of bread. When explaining her crime, she told LaGuardia that her daughter's husband, her daughter's husband, had deserted them, that her daughter was deathly ill, and that her two grandchildren were starving. That's a tight spot. The shopkeeper, however, from whom their bread was stolen, was also present in night court and refused to drop the charges. Present there in night court, he said, quote, she's got to be punished to teach the other people in the neighborhood a lesson. The shopkeeper went on to explain to the mayor that times are hard for everyone and that if he does not uphold the law, then he will have to close his bakery because everyone in the neighborhood will help themselves to the bread. What's the mayor to do? If he throws the book at the little old lady, then she and her whole family are as good as condemned, including her sick daughter, two helpless grandchildren. If he doesn't uphold the law, though, the shopkeeper will most certainly suffer, and anarchy will be unleashed in the city. How can the mayor both uphold justice and show mercy? Again, we're in this new sermon series titled Religion Versus Jesus, and we'll learn today that God has managed to do that, do just that, uphold justice and show mercy through the death of Jesus. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Follow along as I read a beautiful and one of the clearest descriptions of the gospel in Scripture. In fact, if you're looking for a passage of Scripture to memorize, one that would help you more deeply absorb the good news, really lay hold to the good news so that you can live with greater joy and freedom, so that you can put away the pressures of religion and really enjoy relationship with your Creator, as well as a passage of Scripture that you could offer to family and friends when sharing the gospel. This is a great passage to memorize. We're jumping in in the middle of this passage. I'm going to begin reading in verse 20 chapter 3 of Romans, Paul's just finished explaining no one's righteous. So the first word in this morning's chapter is therefore. No one's righteous. Therefore, 
No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to, to all who believe. That righteousness is available this morning. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Amen. A little bit of background. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome about 57 AD, about 24 years after Christ was raised from the grave. He probably wrote the letter, probably from the city of Corinth, while on his third missionary journey. The aim of writing the letter of Romans was multifaceted. At its most basic level, he wanted to raise interest in and funds for a trip to Spain. He was planning to get to Rome and then on to Spain. He hoped to travel to spread the gospel there. He also wrote this letter to clarify the gospel as there were growing tensions between Jew and Gentile. Those tensions are mentioned quickly in today's verses. Tensions around the role that the Mosaic Law was to play ongoing in the lives of those who are trusting in Christ as Savior. Paul wanted to offer clarity on exactly how sinners like us are justified before God, whether through faith, works, or some combination of the two. Toward that end, he's very clear in verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin, aware of our sin. Perhaps this morning, you're keenly aware of your sin. Perhaps this morning you've come, you've had a very bad week, uh, discouraging to you spiritually where you, you circled that same old tree, that same old sin. The ancient uh, fathers called it the besetting sin. We all have our favorite sins, those that we've long since used to, to provide us comfort but only bring death in our lives. And maybe it's been a hard week and you're keenly aware of your sinfulness. There's good news. By righteousness, Paul has in view our right standing. No one will gain right standing before God through works of the law. Rather, through works of the law, we'll become keenly aware that we don't have right standing before God. Sin is any action or attitude contrary to the character of God. God doesn't lust. God doesn't lie. God doesn't cheat or steal or act selfishly. Can you imagine what would it be like to never act selfishly, to be free of self-interest? So those who do such things 
are sinning. When we lust, when we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, when we act, we're acting contrary to the character of God. So that is sin. Our sin separates us from a relationship with our Creator. And something needs to happen to care for us in our sinful state, to restore us to right relationship with God. And Paul wants us to understand that God, that good, that doing works of the law, those works that are spelled out in the Mosaic law, will not fix the problem. They just make us aware of the problem. The role of the law is to reveal the character of God, making us conscious of sin. We're much like the little old lady standing before Mayor LaGuardia. Our sinfulness has been revealed by the law. We've contravened the law. We don't have the resources to make it ourselves right again. We need mercy. But justice must be served. What's God going to do? The answer, he's going to pay the price himself, which is exactly what God did and what the mayor did. Put yourself in the mayor's shoes. If he pretended that the law was not important, then all hell would break loose in the city for which he is responsible as mayor. It was the height of the Great Depression. Lots, lots of folks were hungry, lots out of work. He couldn't just let this little old lady off the hook. He couldn't pretend that the law wasn't important. Justice needed to be served. He had many citizens to care for. There was a purpose, a reason for the law, to preserve the civility of the city. If the law against stealing wasn't held up, then word would get out in the neighborhood and the city wouldn't be served. The best interest of the people wouldn't be served. At the same time, he knew this little old lady couldn't bear the judgment. She couldn't stand up under the law. She had no resources, no way to care for her sickly daughter or her grandchildren, so she stole. How would the mayor both uphold the law and show mercy? The answer, by paying the price. Those who were present at night court that evening, remember LaGuardia, sighing deeply. Then turning to the little old lady, he said, the law makes no exceptions. The fine is $10 or 10 days in jail. But even as he pronounced sentence, the mayor was already reaching into his pocket and paid the fine himself. So in one fell swoop, he asked to both uphold the law and show mercy. And in so doing, he changes this little old lady's legal status. He moves her from unrighteous to righteous. She goes from being a lawbreaker and at odds with the community in which she lives to a citizen in good standing once again. She is what Scripture would describe as justified, pardoned, at peace with the state against which she had committed a crime. This justification happened by the grace of the mayor apart from anything that she did or could do was solely a result of the mayor's mercy. All she needed to do was to accept the mercy of the mayor. Paul explains that God did the same for us through Christ. He came in the flesh, being born of a virgin, living a sinless life in order to pay the debt of humanity, a human debt that we are unable to pay. As an aside, it's interesting to consider the necessity 
of the incarnation in this respect. The necessity of God coming. Human sin required human sacrifice. It's our debt. It's not God's debt. It's a human debt. Humans had sinned. Humans had separated themselves from God. We had contravened the law. But only God had the resources to pay the price. God, so, God put on flesh in order to keep the law perfectly, which no other human could do, and then offer himself as a human sacrifice. Here's Paul's explanation. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who work really hard, to all who clear a, a certain moral standard, no, to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace, his gift, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. If you're an underliner, I would encourage you to draw a hard underline under the words sacrifice of atonement in verse 25. The New Testament was originally written in Greek and the words translated as sacrifice of atonement in our English Bible refers to the atoning cover of the Ark of the Covenant, what was often referred to as the mercy seat. This is significant because it should draw in our minds a picture of what Jesus has accomplished for us and how it works transactionally. The economy of God is what I'm trying to describe. Under the law of Moses, once a year, a priest would carry some of the blood of bulls and goats that were offered for sins, the sins of Israel, behind the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The picture on the screen is a cutaway diagram of the tabernacle on the far left is the curtain that separated the, the right side, the holy place, from the left side, the most holy place. And the most holy place set a gold box called the Ark of the Covenant. And the lid to the Ark was called the mercy seat. Here's an artist's rendering of that Ark. Once a year, the high priest would sprinkle blood onto the cover of this box. You do so because it was through the shedding of blood and the application of blood to the mercy seat that the Israelites received forgiveness. Paul's saying that through faith in Jesus' blood, our sins have been similarly atoned for. We find God's mercy through faith in the shed blood of Jesus. We are thus made righteous, given right standing before God, not through anything we do, but simply by trusting what Jesus has done. This has significant implications for the way we live day to day, as well as how we feel about ourselves. Religion says, how I act can save me. Jesus says, he can save me from how I act. We put it in past tense. He has saved me from how I act. 
Religion tells us to depend upon ourselves and to be moral, performing works of the law in the hope of being declared righteous, regaining right standing or maintaining right standing with God. Jesus says he has saved us from the consequences of our sinful behavior, restored us to relationship with God simply through faith, faith in what he's done. He becomes our righteousness. The very co the core of our hope has changed. I am not my greatest hope. You are not your greatest hope. Christ is our only hope. Here's how Paul expresses it later in the passage, verse 27. Where then is boasting? I like to say, what makes me feel good about me? Where then is boasting? It is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. What makes us feel good about ourselves? Paul might say, ask a little differently. In what or in whom do you boast? When you boast, do you boast in the size of your bank account? Is that what makes you feel good about yourself? Or the size of your house? Or the number of employees you oversee? Your athletic prowess? Your academic credentials? Your morality? And there's the core of it. Your sense of righteousness. Meaning, do you feel good about the fact that you're less sinful than others? I like to call it the Jerry Springer effect. Uh, I won't ask us to confess who's seen Jerry Springer's show. It's an old show. Um, it's, um, I maintain that people watch the Jerry Springer show because they came away saying, well, at least I'm not that bad. Maybe you feel good about yourself because of your generosity, and it's good to be generous. Or your kindness, and it's good to be kind. God would rather we be moral than immoral, without a doubt. But what makes us feel justified before God? On what basis do we present ourselves to God? What's our hope? Interestingly, Jesus told the story of two men who went to the temple to, to pray. It's in Luke 18. You can read it later today. One of the men, one of these two men was a Pharisee, a deeply religious man, a highly moral man, a disciplined man. The other was a tax collector, a thoroughly sinful man, separated from the Jewish community by his tax collecting work. The Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other sinners. I'm not like other sinners. He felt good about himself in comparison to others his relative morality. And they went on to recite in prayer all his moral accomplishments. Father, he said, I, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I have to the poor, making sure God was aware of his morality. The tax, collect, tax collector simply prayed, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Religious activity promotes boasting in oneself. 
And I maintain that having to boast in oneself is a tremendous burden. It's a really long, hard race to trust in yourself. But a relationship with Jesus does not allow for boasting, unless we're boasting in the Lord and what he's done. And you do a word search of how Paul uses the word boasting in Romans. That's really what he's pushing us towards. Finding our identity in Christ, our hope in Christ, our emotional sense of well-being in Christ. Jesus went on to explain that it was the tax collector who received mercy and was justified before God. The tax collector was made righteous by his plea for mercy, his trust in what God could do for him, not what he could do for himself. One of the greatest blessings of trusting in Christ as Savior, rather than trusting in our own works, is that it frees us from that emotional roller coaster of trying to boast in ourselves. Religion encourages me to boast in me, in my accomplishments, which means that when I'm sinful, and that happens every day, when I'm sinful, I'm often defensive. I'm sometimes devastated and discouraged because it's critical, if I'm my greatest hope, that I feel good about myself. And so I work really hard to maintain that good feeling and that right standing. Well, faith in Jesus frees us to boast in him. Lewis said about humility, humility is not thinking less of ourself, it's thinking of ourselves less. Follow that? The, the most secure place to be when it comes to esteem is in the provision of our creator. So much is said in our popular culture about self-esteem. Folks, that only got me so far. <laughs> the elders are sharing uh, their testimonies with one another. It's a part of the regular rhythm of our elder meetings. And uh, in this season, sometimes we'll study scripture together, sometimes uh, we'll do other activities, but right now we've been in a season of sharing our testimony together. I remarked... Uh, to Sherry, um, I'm the only elder currently that had an unbelieving father, which is a beautiful reality for our church. I'll share my testimony next. I'm the last in the line to share my testimony. And so I've been thinking on it because unfortunately you guys hear from me a lot, right? <laughs> so what can I say to the elders that they haven't already heard about my testimony? And I think my testimony will be something like, God has healed me from a tremendous wound and is healing me. I like to say, my father wound is about the size of Texas. But God has healed me. And the nature of the wound is a distinctly masculine wound that was established in fear and insecurity. I describe the historic men of uh, my, my father, my grandfathers on both sides as ornery men. And that sounds kind of cute. It wasn't cute. There was real meanness 
in my family of origin. Self-esteem only got me so far. I'll never forget, so the first funeral I ever did was my grandfather's funeral on my father's side. And um, Andrew was my oldest, who's now 28. Is he 27? Thank you. <laughs> my oldest was about five, four or five years old, so he didn't remember it. The, then later I did my grandmother's funeral. Um, he was old enough to remember it. And at the, the gathering afterwards, so Andrew was 12 or 13, after the gathering, he remarked, that's what you would have been like without Jesus. Because he, he saw some of the family of origin stuff. What makes us feel good about us? Our greatest hope is in Christ. His all-sufficient love and care. Let me just say it again because, because it's worth saying. If self-esteem is what you're working on, it is a tremendous burden. It's a long, hard race. If we're honest about who we are, right? If we want to pretend we, if we don't want to be honest about who we are, then maybe it won't catch up with you. But when it catches up with you, the gravity of my selfishness, of our selfishness, is overwhelming. But Christ's esteem, that's what we need. There is an unending supply of blessing and hope in Christ's esteem. There's an interesting plot twist to LaGuardia's work on the bench that evening. After paying the little old lady's fine, the mayor goes on to find everyone in the courtroom Except the little old lady, of course. He, fires, he finds everybody in the courtroom 50 cents for being a part of a city where little old ladies need to break in and steal loaves of bread. She walks out of the courtroom that night with $47.50. I did a quick Google search of the value of uh, $47.50 in 1935. It would be $1,005 today. She, she goes into the courtroom a criminal, under the burden of the law, hopeless, she comes out of the courtroom not just justified, but blessed. That is Christ. <laughs> it's our habit to close in prayer. Pat and Joe Roach will be down front. They'd love to pray with you if, you need, if we all need prayer, if you want prayer. Come on down front. Would you stand with me while I close in prayer? Father, we, uh, we ask that you'd care for us, have mercy on us as sinners. We realize that to have mercy on us, we'll need to see, we'll need to see our sin in stark contrast to your righteousness. Care for us in that reality. May your grace and mercy 
wash over us afresh and anew. In Jesus' name, amen.